Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. you'd open up your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua as we finish up. The division of the land will be in chapters 18 and 19. And anybody else glad that we finally made it to the end of this? Now, if you're Jewish, you'd be looking for your own personal name. If you were Jewish, you'd be looking for your family. If you're Jewish... You'd be looking for your tribe. You see, even secreted away inside of these passages, which to us are a long list of names that most of us in this room would have a tough time pronouncing, is a promise for you. A promised land for you. A place for you that God wants you to dwell. A life that God wants you to live. And while these are specific promises of specific places for specific people, they hold a much greater application when we look at our own lives and what God has promised each of us. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Amen? He's promised that he will and shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen? He has promised you an eternal home in heaven. He has promised that though you die, yet you shall live. Amen? But you got to grasp those promises. They don't do a bit of good to just know them up here until you're willing to take your faith and combine it with the works of seizing what God has given you. That is the chief text that we'll look at tonight as the children of Israel finally portion out the remainder of the land. Would you join me in prayer? And at the same time, we're going to pray for the horrible occurrence that was in Uvalde, Texas, with the death of these these little ones. Some mom's child. Some dad's kid. Some grandma, grandpa's grandson. When will our nation turn to Jesus? is the question I have. Father, we come to you and we agonize and cry out with the citizens of Uvalde, Texas. Lord, this tight-knit community, it lies near the, really close to the border with Mexico. And Lord, there are those that are trying to make this a political issue. It's not a political issue, it's a sin issue. It's someone without hope doing what people without hope do. They take lives into their own hands and they act on the sin that is within each of us. And we pray for every parent that lost their child. We pray for the law enforcement that showed up and had to do their job, had to step into the line of fire. Lord, we pray for the mayor and the city council. We pray for the teachers, Lord, that will live with this horror for the rest of their life. But Lord, we primarily lift up those moms and dads whose sons and daughters are not coming home ever again. Lord, we ask you to change this country. Lord, we ask that you would help us to write laws that represent you, your desire, your plans. Lord, we're not telling you what those should be. We're crying out to you that we want to do what you want us to do. 
And so, Lord, help us to know what that is. And, Father, we pray that you would stem the tide of evil. And we believe that that will come when the light shines on every human heart. When those without you come to know you. And so we pray that churches would be busy about their father's business, which is preaching the gospel, not preaching a political answer. Lord, that we would lay hold of that truth in this country and get back to teaching the word. Lord, without compromise, without wavering, and shunning that which is evil. Lord, we ask you to speak to us tonight as we study your word. Lord, we need to hear you. And so we give you our ears, we give you our hearts, we give you our minds. Speak, O Lord. To your children we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 18, verse 1, And now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. So Joshua has now moved the tabernacle of the meeting to Shiloh. That is a elongated version of Shiloh, Shiloh meaning peace. And set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them. Now it's interesting to me that God always, 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 always wants us to include a place of worship in our living. The children of Israel always found their best life when they combined their walks with the Lord with absolutely everything else. When they forgot to set up the tabernacle, when they did not build an altar, when they kind of wandered around without church, so to speak, they wandered around. Joshua's getting back to what really matters. The land was subdued. They finally reached that place to where they could portion out all of the land of all of the tribes. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes that had not received their inheritance. Now I want you to notice, and I'm going to make a little bit of conjecture here, but we don't know why these seven tribes specifically had not yet received their inheritance, but we do know what lies behind it, because we're going to be told. Joshua said to the children of Israel, and here it comes, This is for someone here tonight. This is for us tonight. This is a message for you tonight. This is something you can take home with you. And then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect, circle that word, neglect most of the time is passive. It's not denial It's not outright rejection. It is neglecting the things of God. How long will you neglect to go and possess the land, here it comes, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Past tense. The original language here indicates that this promise is the promise. God made it. He's good for it. What's wrong with you? Go possess it. Go take it. It belongs to you. The reason this is so important for us is because many Christians walk in neglect of their spiritual possessions. Many Christians know what the Bible says, but they do not possess what it says. They can quote chapter and verse, but they don't live chapter and verse. In other words, their faith, as James said, is dead because it lacks works. Possession is works. Possession is me getting up and spending time with Jesus. Possession is me having a prayer life. Possession is me actually being a doer of the word, not a hearer only. So that I have deceived myself into believing that possessing what God has for me is just going to happen by osmosis. 
you will not ever possess what God has for you if you just sit around on your hands. He has given you a brain and a body for a purpose. And he expects you to do your part. But you can neglect the promises of God. And when you do, you do not possess what God wants for you. You will wander around unblessed because you have not possessed. You'll stumble through life. God was present with them. We're told the tabernacle set up. It wasn't that God disappeared. God was there in the tabernacle. His presence was visible. I don't know about you. I kind of am a little jealous of the Jewish people in that regard. They had a visible representation of the Lord. Can you imagine if every morning you got a phone call? Because we're anybody else getting ridiculous amounts of political calls right now. It's like I get like 50 of them a day now. It's like, vote for this guy, don't vote for that guy, do this, don't do that. Can you imagine if the Lord sees our cell phone networks and every morning you got a text from Jesus? Hello, this is the Lord. These are your commands for today. This is the Lord your God who loves you with all of his heart. And here's what I want you to do, Jeff. To some degree, your Bible is that message. It's speaking to you. The word of God is living. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit. It's for the tearing down of the strongholds of the wicked one. Amen? But you have to possess it. You have to wield it. A sword does no good in the hands of a gladiator if he won't wield the sword. Amen? You can be as strong as you want, but if you do not practice wielding the sword, you will not be very successful as a gladiator. And so I believe God is speaking to us tonight on this very critical issue. There remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not received their inheritance. The question for me is why? Why would they not want to possess it? Why would Joshua need to prod them? If God promised you a land flowing with milk and honey and said, here's where it is, all you need to go do is take it, I have given it into your hands. Any of you got those, the, the California dream home things in the mail? It's like you buy you know, $400 worth of raffle tickets and you can win a house up in PV. I see that many of you have not yet won that. But imagine it came in the mail in a little different fashion. It was the California Dream Home thing, and it said, you have won the house in PV. I think most of you, believing that you're all sane, are going to go get the keys. Amen? That's called possession. Now, you could have gotten the message, and the message was very clear, But until you get in your vehicle, or for me, I would walk. It wouldn't matter how I get there to go get the keys to this nice ocean view house. You know, whether you want to stay there, you want to, whatever you want, you want to sell it, whatever. I'm thinking somebody gives me a $14 million house, I'm at least going to go get the keys, okay? But wouldn't you kind of think if you knew somebody who had that happen to them and they didn't go possess it, wouldn't you kind of think something's wrong with them? There's something a little not right. That's what God's thinking in this passage. I have given you the very best land. I've made good on my promises, but you won't go possess them. Be careful this doesn't happen to you in your life, because it can. And the chief way it can happen is by neglect. You're simply not listening to the Lord. How long will you neglect to go and possess the long? It it uh, possess the land. It's on you. It's on me. There's an old bumper sticker from the 70s. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Some of us are old enough to remember that. It's 
kind of like the yellow I found it stickers. You know, we've been around for a long time. And you put those on your car to get people to ask you, well, what did you find? I've owned Jesus. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That is a non-neglecting person. That's someone who lays hold of what God has for them. There is a huge danger in neglect. We covered this when we were in Hebrews chapter 2, but to highlight a little of the truth there, the writer of the book of Hebrews, verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The writer of Hebrews had it right. The more earnest heed. We have to really be listening, and really listening, and really learning, and then really doing what God wants us to do. And if you read the remainder of that passage, for the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape so great a salvation? How? By neglect. You can take this wonderful thing called your life in Christ and do absolutely nothing with it. You can sit around on your hands all day long if you want spiritually. God's not going to force you into prosperity in him. He's not going to force you into kingdom living. He's going to give you an opportunity that he won by Christ's death on the cross that secures the victory for you. The battle's been won already. And so he's handed you this victory and said, now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do for me? How are you going to live your life? We wonder sometimes how far we, we end up so far from God's will. This is how. We stop paying attention. And church, I want to tell you something, and please remember this. If you don't remember much from tonight, remember this. Because drifting is passive, it is very often also imperceptible. You don't see it. The devil doesn't come to you and you know, push you 180 degrees from God. The devil gives you a nudge. The devil just bumps you a little bit. Pastor Chet's story in the elevator, how he, you know, he's going to bump the dude back. That's the deal. It's like, that was a test. Now, fortunately, he did not turn into a flesh pit, start a fist fight, and get in trouble, get arrested, and have to stay where he was. Because it was not a good place to stay, okay? But here's the deal. That's how it happens. That bump turns into, I'm following this dude. Which turns into, hey, what's wrong with you? Which turns into, well, actually, I'm from the government, and I was trying to see what you're doing. Now you're under arrest. Now you're like, you don't know why you're even in jail, but you're in jail. You see, that's how Satan works. It's just, you just neglect. You see, that was a fleshly response. And by the way, I've done the same thing. I, I cannot stand. I'm one of those people, it's like, I need just a little bit of space, but that's my space. So when you get inside of my space, it's like everything from my martial arts training just all of a sudden goes on high alert. It's like, okay, first I'm going to sweep that arm, then I'm going to break that elbow. It's like, that's what happens. It's just a thing, okay? Called my flesh. My flesh is on alert. When you neglect what God's doing in your life, those little bumps turn into pits in the middle of the road and you drive right into them. So please be careful. There is a danger to neglect. Notice what is said next, and I find this very, very, very interesting. Now let me preface what I'm going to say with this. If you're the type of person that believes that all you need to do is pray and sit on your hands, then please listen. 
if you're the type of person that believes you need to do everything for God, please listen. There are two errors here. One is to not put enough faith into the mix, and the other is to not put enough elbow grease and brain power into the picture. Amen? And so here's what happens. Pick out from among you three men from each tribe and send them, and they will rise and go through the land and survey it according to their inheritance. Come back to me. They should divide it into seven parts. He sends out a survey crew, a 21-member survey crew. This is not willy-nilly. This is definite brain power. This is spy out the land. This is look at the geographical markers. This is put up cornerstones. This is take care of everything you possibly can to make this as clear as possible by using your head. The house of Joseph, Judah shall remain in their territory. The house of Joseph shall remain in their territory. And therefore the survey of the land in seven parts and bring the survey to me that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. Now remember that the casting of lots was not gambling. This is not, you know, come on sevens. This was yes or no. So it was really saying, God, we believe that you can give us the correct answers. There's only two of them. These lots were not going to end up kind of halfway between. It was going to be black or it was going to be white. And interestingly enough, for the lot, the white was the no. The black was the yes. And so it's just like, okay, whose is this? Is this Benjamin's? Yes. But the Levites have no part among you. Why? Because they were not to be concerned with the things of this earth. They were to possess nothing. The Jewish people were to take care of them. They were focused solely on the Lord. Period. For the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad and Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. And then the men arose to go away. And Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land and survey it. Now please circle that. Notice it doesn't say, Go search the internet to see if somebody surveyed it previously. It doesn't say, Go talk to somebody who may have possibly surveyed it at some point in time and ask what they say. There's definite work involved in this. And when you travel with us to Israel, you're going to find out that though it is a Mediterranean climate, much like here, and, and you could look at Death Valley and perhaps the lower Coachella Valley, and you're going to see a very similar type of topography and a similar type of heat, there's also an awful lot of mountains. This is not easy walking. This is not easy surveying. It is dry, it is hot, it is dusty. There's very little water available and you better know where it is. And so God gave them work to do with both their hands and their minds. I want you to go and survey the land and bring the results back to me. But you need to go do it. And then I will cast lots for you here, the Lord says, in Shiloh. Notice what they're told to do. It's use their heads, use their minds, and use their bodies. Use the brain power that God has given you. Why am I highlighting this? Because Christians err two different directions, generally speaking, with this regard. There are people that, well, you know, I'm just waiting for a management position. I'm just going to pray. Well, what about filling out a resume? What about filling out applications? What about going and interviewing for those jobs? What about actually going and hunting down a job? What about taking a job that you don't want until you do get a job that you do want? What about actually doing something? True? I know people like that. Maybe you don't. 
You see, God hasn't called you as a believer to sit on your hands and wait for him to answer every prayer. He's called you to get up and get busy while you're waiting for him to answer, doing what you do already know how to do. You're not sitting around waiting for God to just simply bless you because he could do that. You're actually active using the faculties that the Lord has given us as human beings. And one of the greatest things, one of the things that he put the most R&D into is your mind. Without your mind, you could not receive the message of the gospel, could you? Now, it's not only just believed in your head, it also goes to your heart, it's acted on by faith, But without your mind, you wouldn't even know that sin is sin. You wouldn't know that there's a Savior. You wouldn't have any capacity whatsoever to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ without this wonderful thing, this three and a half pounds for most of us, this lumpy, bumpy piece of gray matter that contains a quadrillion neurons. That gray matter that's in your head. Your mind is still to this day the most complex computing system on the planet. It isn't something from Apple. It's not from Dell. It's from Jesus. That's that's what's in your head. And it's only this big. Why am I telling you this? Because if God put that much of his creative ability into giving you something so that you can think and reason, it reasons that he wants you to think. Amen? To use it. And not just, oh, well, you know, we prayed about it. Well, what did you do after you prayed? Did you act on it in faith? Did you trust God? I'm not saying you have to run out and do something every single time you pray. But what I am saying is if you're sitting around and it's now six years down the road and God hasn't given you that new job that you thought you were going to get and you're getting food stamps, you might want to rethink your plan. Maybe God's speaking something else to you. Maybe it's time for you to actually go take a job that you don't want. And I'm only using this as an example. Maybe you, maybe you want that upgraded Tesla, but the only thing you can afford is that Hyundai. And God's giving you the ability to reason, hey, I've got this much money, I can afford this car payment, but you know, it's 0% for three weeks. Right? And we sit around, oh, it's 0% for three weeks. Well, what are you doing after the three weeks? That's where your brain comes in. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hopefully, that's where your brain comes in. You go, oh, that, you know, that wasn't quite as sweet a deal as I thought. If you're thinking about your thinking, your brain is absolutely amazing. These little neurons that are in here, the quadrillion or so of them that you have, it's a nerve cell. There's almost 100 billion of those little guys. And you have receiving cells and you have informational cells that carry information away and they purely work on chemical exchange. Now imagine that there are people that believe that just somehow came about by random chance. A quadrillion cells that have two different properties to them, generally speaking, but are connected to another thousand cells each which multiply your computing power just like chips do in a computer, by the way. But somehow they came about by random chance processes over billions of years. Neurons actually have a sheet. They have a membrane. They have a nucleus that actually has your genetic material in them. They have cytoplasm and mitochondria. They actually are self-powered. For those of you who don't know, the mitochondrial motor that's in every one of your cells actually is what makes it alive. You have a quadrillion of those in your head. And they're all talking to each other. They're connected in systems. Each one of them has a synapse or a connecting point. 
Now assume that you were going to sit around and count 100 billion cells. That's just 100 billion. At the rate of one per second. This is how amazing your brain is. If you could say all of those numbers, it would take you 3,171 years just to count the cells in your brain if you could do one a second, which you can't. reason I'm telling you this is they then begin to communicate one with each other. Each of them can fire about 10 times in one millisecond. That's a millionth of a second. And as they communicate to each other, they're capable of transmitting the data, every single bit of it, if you were to store the Library of Congress nine times over in your head. As if it were digitized. God put a ton of research and development into your brain. And he did so for a reason. It's complex for a reason. It has computing power that is unparalleled in the universe for a reason. You can store almost 100 terabytes of information in your brain. Now most of you know, if, you're, if you were born... Uh, after, let's call it, let's call the 1980. 1990s, personal computers, early 1990s, became available to the average person. The average personal computer had maybe five or 500 megabytes of information. Most of your cell phones have a thousand times that capacity today. What you carry in your pocket Now imagine what your brain can do that God designed. A hundred terabytes. Probably very few of you have anything more than about a terabyte available in your computer at home. Your brain has a hundred times that storage capacity. All those memories, all those thoughts, all those processes, every bit of your English, which most of us didn't remember, every bit of your mathematics, which we remember even less, but you know all these things. And so God says to them, look, I got a job for you. I want you to use your head. I want you to go out. I want you to survey the land. Remember what I told you. And I want you to come back with the exact dimensions of the land for the remaining seven tribes. Use your cognitive resources. Don't just sit around and wait for it to happen. So church, for you tonight, don't forget to use your brain. Do exactly what James reminds us to do. You see, faith by itself, when it does not have works, James said there in James 2, is dead. When you believe something and you don't act on it, it's dead. You might as well not know it. You might as well not have it available to you. You might as well not be able to remember it. It's dead. He said, the mark of a foolish man is that faith without works is dead. If you have faith that doesn't want to go out and do anything, it's dead faith. The children of Israel wanted to sit around. They were just going to wait. And God said, that's not what I have for you. I want you to go out, survey the land, bring the survey back to me, and then God will speak to us through the casting of lots. Work first, then God spoke. Doesn't always work that way, but very often God does work exactly that way. Shouldn't shock anybody that your bank account doesn't fill up with money automatically every night. Most of you have a job. And that job requires that you be at work eight, ten hours a day, and you get paid X number of dollars an hour, and from that you get a paycheck, it goes in the bank. The same thing with God. Faith without works is dead. God could fill your bank account with faith and fill your bank account with money too. But he chooses to allow us to test him by doing something with what we believe. Children of Israel, we're not doing that. It's a lesson for us 
to get busy about our Father's business. Wrapping all this up, the survey comes out, and we get the final division of the land, and now the lot of the tribe of Benjamin came according, verse 11, to their families and their territory, and their lot came out between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. So it's actually describing the borders. Their border on the north began at the Jordan. The border went up on the side of Jericho. So you can see in, in technical terms, in surveying terms, we generally do what are called meets and bounds surveys. There's a series of angles of declination. Those lines cross one another, and where they cross, it forms a boundary corner. So those little markers that you have on the corners of your property, those are very specific points. They're relative to space, in essence. That's why when your neighbor's tree falls over in your yard, you can go, hey, that's your tree, but it's in my yard. It's the same thing here. Here's the northern boundary. Here's the southern boundary. They had to go spy those things out. This was figured out by the survey crew. That's how they knew these things. Another border went over from Luz, and from the side of Luz, which is Bethel southward towards the descent to Eroth, and Adar, the hill that lies in the lower side of Beth Haran. And the border extended around to the west, to the south. And you can kind of see what's going on here. The south side begins at Kirjath Jerim. And it goes through all of these various places. And if you follow them around, the Jordan River Valley and the extent of what we now call Israel, you're going to see that it uses very defined points, the Valley of Hinnom. The Hinnom Valley, the Jezreel Valley. It moves along to the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea to us today. The south end of the Jordan River, which dumps into the Dead Sea. So very, very, very specific things were done by this group of 21 guys. And so they cast lots to make sure that everyone gets their allotted inheritance Now to the tribe of Zebulon, you can see all of the names of the children of Israel in each one of these things. Named cities and their villages. And remember, cities back then were places where maybe a thousand people lived. A village might be 20, 50, 30, 100 people. Very, very different definitions. Today, we don't call something a city until it has 150, 200,000 people in it. That would have been the sum and total population of the entirety of the, of the land, 250,000 people, 300,000 people, maybe a couple million people in the whole of what we would call Israel today. There's more than that in Tel Aviv today. And so they divvy out all of the rest of these. So Beersheba, which is just south of Jerusalem. You can see cities that still exist today. Ramon, which is there, Ramah in the south, all these cities actually are still habited to this, to this day and time. In chapter 19, as we continue and we'll wrap this up, you can see the boundaries of cities for the tribe of Zebulun, the boundaries of cities for the tribe of Ishakar, for Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. And so the reason that this is important is now when you look at the historical record and where all these cities are, when people say, well, this really isn't the Jewish people's land, Not only is it clearly defined, even the Canaanites went so far as to declare that this land was taken by the children of Israel. So when we travel and go to the city of Tel, we go to the the actual, the ruin of Tel Dan, and we look at the gate of Abraham, we're looking at history that goes back from our day and time, the better part of four and a half thousand years. And it is there that Abraham ultimately starts his march into the promised land. And so each one of these cities, the third lot, came out for the children of Zebulon, the fourth lot for the children of Issachar. Their territory went to Jezreel. Now the Jezreel Valley is very defined today. It's still called the Jezreel Valley. It's an area, area of farmland. It's also known by another name that you all know, the Valley of Megiddo. It's going to be the location of the final battle when the Lord himself returns to this earth. Mankind no longer will tolerate the word of the Lord when people become so intent on evil 
that Jesus will return, the one who, the, who is worthy to open the scroll and to unleash these horrors of the tribulation. Finally, in a battle that we call the Battle of Armageddon, or in Revelation 16, that valley is named. It's interesting that the Israeli Air Force, the IDF Air Force, has its largest air base at Ramot David, which is in the Chesreel Valley. It has three missile bases in the Jezreel Valley. So whether the Jewish people realize it or not, they're actually preparing for what the Bible says will happen in the very last days. The cities of the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali, interesting study of history when you travel through that particular region as you look at these things the street names have guess which names these the town locations oh that's Lakum well that belongs to the tribe of Naphtali Chenareth interesting name Because that's actually the name of a place that you probably all know. The Bible calls it the Sea of Galilee. Chenaret actually means harp. And if you look at the shape of the Sea of Galilee, which is that little tiny lake up there at the northern end by Hazor, it looks like the shape of a harp. It's also known as Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. All of these things, God's saying, look, this is the land that I gave to my people. It belongs to them. They are to go and possess it. So when the children of Israel came into the land in 1948 on May 14th, and then they're attacked two days later by, in essence, the entire Arab world, it shouldn't surprise anyone that God said, oh, that, that, no, that's not happening. And they lost that war. Israel won. Matter of fact, Israel took land. The same thing happened in 1967. We will cross over the Allenby Bridge to go into Jordan, named after General Allenby, who actually took the Temple Mount. Ariel Sharon gave it back to the Jordanians three days later. But from God's perspective, he gave it to the children of Israel. It belongs to Judah. What God says, God does. And we say the Temple Mount is the most contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. It's the most contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. It's only 27 acres. But it almost daily has fights and little mini riots and all kinds of crazy things that happen. Because the world doesn't want to recognize what God did right here. Your land. Go possess it. And every time the children of Israel have given up land for peace, guess what? It hasn't worked. Because it's actually God's land. And God told them to possess it. It's yours. It doesn't mean that it should be done in a warring fashion necessarily today. But what God says, we need to believe and act on. So as you look at all these tribes, you can see where they're located. So if you look, again, we saw this map just a couple of weeks ago. But if you look at that body of water, which is the Dead Sea, which is on the bottom of the picture in the Sea of Galilee on the north, the Jordan River runs and dumps into the Red Sea, which is where Elat is, the southernmost point of Israel. When you look at this, you can drive in four and a half hours from one end of the country to the other. And so God said, this is your land. Now think about that for a second. That's a tiny chunk of land. That's like you and I, we drive up to San Luis Obispo and we decide, okay, well, we're going to drive down to San Diego. You would drive out the other end of Israel if you drove that far from north to the south. God says, yours. Possess it. 
Finally, we have Joshua's inheritance, verse 49 to verse 51. And when they had made an end to the dividing of the land, everybody say, hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for telling us all this stuff. You can see you're thrilled. According to dividing the land as an inheritance. Notice what it is. It's an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. Amen? If you receive an inheritance, it's not given to you because you earned it. Someone else earned it and they gave it to you. Amen? Now, you, you might have part in a family business or whatever, but the fact of the matter is it belonged to someone else. They are giving it to you. That's the definition of an inheritance. Who gave it to him? God. Why? By the way, the book of Joel tells us this story. Why? It's his land. So this is my land, and I'm giving it to them as a perpetual inheritance. According to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he'd asked for, Temnasarah in the mountains of Ephraim. But he built the city and dwelt in it. And these are the inheritance which, which Eliezer the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by Lot and Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so they made an end to the dividing of the land. The end of the story. Israel overcomes their spiritual laziness. Joshua did what was wise and what was prudent. Joshua lives out that Proverbs 12, 27 promise. Look, you, you can have all the meat in the world. If you don't cook it, it's not going to do you much good. A lazy man doesn't roast what he killed hunting. He uses an actual survey crew. But that was able to be done quite a bit earlier. They just didn't want to do the work. And so finally they do the work and they inherit what needs to be inherited by them, what was rightfully theirs. I want you to notice something. The children of Joseph wanted more territory, but they weren't willing to fight for it by faith. The people of Judah had so much land that they shared it with Simeon. There's two different viewpoints there. One is I don't really want to work with anything. I don't want to work with anybody. And that person has nothing to give. Matter of fact, very often God takes away what you already have. But the person who is generous, the person who recognizes all that we have is in stewardship before the Lord. God gives more to those people because he knows that they will act with his plans in mind. That's why Paul would write there in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, I say this to you, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of you, as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. In other words, the path to abundance is giving away what you already have. Sharing. Going, God, this isn't even mine. You want to send somebody with a need? You want to do something in some other country? You want to create some incredible work that I couldn't do on my own? Look, I have this. I can give to that end. And so we see God blessing those who are cheerful in the fact that, sure as God, I wouldn't have any of it if it weren't for you. It's not just the 90% after I tithe 10%. That's, that's not mine either. That's still God's. And so being the leader he was, Joshua waited to the very end before he took any land for himself. That's a leader. 
leader thinks of the church first. A leader thinks of others first. That's what Jesus did, amen? Jesus was and remains to this day the most other-centric being that has ever existed. All that he did, he did for you and me. And because it was the will of his Father, he didn't even accomplish his own will. He accomplished the will of him who sent him, which is God the Father. What a wonderful picture Joshua is of Jesus for that reason. He thought of himself last and thought of others first. Just like his friend Caleb. Joshua ends up living on a mountain. So if you have a desire to live on a mountain, then think of others first. Amen? Just stand, we'll pray together. We'll have some pastors up front for prayer afterwards. You've got something going on that needs a touch from the Lord. Father, we thank you. Lord, first, to be able to get through this tonight, Lord, we, we do confess that Sometimes these passages seem like they don't hold much for us in 2022, but they do. Lord, if we walked away tonight remembering not to neglect our salvation, remembering that we have to be doers of the word, we have to possess what you've given us, we can't just know about it. If we think of others first, if we're cheerful in our giving, if we remember, God, that you have a perfect plan for us, and you have a perfect plan for everyone. And we want to see that kingdom come and that will be done on this earth. Lord, if we remember those things, then we will have gained much. So Lord, impress upon our hearts your truth. Continue to lead us, guide us, and direct us as a church. Bless us, Lord. As we are busy about our Father's business, Lord, would you give us what you want us to have in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.